Hi everyone and welcome to the show. This is episode number 35 of Pop Culturally Deprived and today we're going to be talking about Thelma and Louise on your He's Got a Lot to Be Proud Of podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. And this week we're joined by our friend Allie, host of the Lost Watch podcast. As soon as Allie heard I'd never seen Thelma and Louise, she jumped at the chance to talk about it with us. Welcome to the show, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I have to admit, I'm a little pop culturally deprived myself, so listening to your show has been a great reminder to check out some content that I've procrastinated on for years. So thank you to both of you for uh, bringing some new stuff into my life that I've uh, really enjoyed. It's always so exciting to me when I find other people who haven't seen the things that I have because I thought I was alone, and you let me know that I'm not, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I still have a backlog of, epi- of episodes of the show that I haven't got to because I still haven't seen whatever the topic is. So I think... Um, like Die Hard was on there for a while, so I finally watched that a little while ago. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it's great. I watched Thelma and Louise for the first time when I was in my early 20s and basically completely fell in love with it. I had no idea how it ended at the time and promptly sobbed when it was over because um, my parents just couldn't understand. <laughs> so they thought I knew what the ending was and then they, they're reading the film is the same as mine, so they didn't see it as like a, a death at the end. They saw it more of as a, like they're free. But I was just so moved by that, like, friendship and, like, seeing them go off that I would just kind of, like, it got me right in the feels. <laughs> right. Um, and then I watched the film a few la- few years later for a uh, film and gender studies reference, reference class when I was in my undergraduate degree. And it really helped me appreciate the film in a whole new way. So I'm hoping to bring a little bit of that fiery feminism <laughs> to the show today. Um, Nathan and I actually watched this film as part of our feminist Valentine's Day every year. <laughs> Oh, I like that. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Do you watch other stuff? Are there other things you do on it? Yeah, mostly. I mean, so this year we just did films because we were both in graduate school. So our time was uh, kind of limited. So we didn't do uh, a heck of a lot besides the films, but we picked out some good ones. So Mad Max Fury Road was obviously on there. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So Mandy, how come you've never watched this film? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. I have no idea why I've never watched this. As best as I can figure, I was just too young when it came out. And then it just never really appealed once I got older. There were always other things I really wanted to watch. But I really just don't know. I know that's a terrible answer, but I don't know. It's it's becoming a bit of an ordinary, not an ordinary answer, the, the standard answer that we give or that you give. That I don't know. These are just films you have missed out on, and now you get to go back and experience them. Oh, maybe. I mean, American <laughs> Beauty was because I thought it was about a pervy old man and could not watch that in my... And, and it wasn't at all. Innocent, so... <laughs> <laughs> right, why don't you tell us a bit of the history of the film? Okay. Uh, Thelma and Louise is a sort of buddy film that was released on May 24th, 1991. It had a $16.5 million budget and brought in over $45 million at the North American box office. It starred Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon in the title roles and launched the career of then-unknown Brad Pitt. Written by Callie Corey and directed by Ridley Scott, the film was an overwhelming success. It received six Academy Award nominations for Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actress for both Sarandon and Davis, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. Callie Corey won for the screenplay. And in 2016, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now, I'm going to give you guys a summary of this movie 
based on my thoughts right after I watched it. But then I would like Allie to jump in and tell us her perspective on what the film is about, just because we are coming at this from two very different angles, I think. Yes, definitely, I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let me start this by saying I literally had no idea what this movie was about other than uh, there was some sort of crime that happened and they drove a car off a cliff at the end. Right. That's all I knew when I went into the movie. So you knew what the ending was? I did. Which okay. I think ruins it a little bit. Like if that's... Anyways, you can you can just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got done with the movie and I was thinking about what I just watched and, and what it was trying to tell me and, and all of those sorts of things, this is what I came up with. Two middle-aged women decide to go on a weekend vacation, inadvertently begin a crime spree, and then decide to commit suicide rather than get caught. <laughs> and I know, Allie, you don't like that. So why don't you tell us what you what you think the synopsis of the movie is, and, and let's just get started there. Sure. Okay. So basically, I know that um, you're going to you know pull the death of the author on me, and that's fine. I, I'm prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> but... The screenwriter has deliberately said that this film is not about them dying by suicide at the end. Um, So certainly not to take away from your reading of the text. You see what you see and that's fine. It's just never the way that I've experienced the film. I've kind of seen it the same way that the screenwriter talks about it. She says, it always struck me as preposterous that people saw it as a suicide. I don't even think of them as dead. I just wasn't in any way prepared for people to say, God, they kill themselves? What kind of message is that? I want to say... It's the message you came up with, not me. To me, the ending was symbolic, not literal. I mean, come on, read a book. We did everything possible to make sure you didn't see a literal death, that you didn't see the car land, that you didn't see a big puff of smoke coming up out of the canyon. You were left with the image of them flying. They flew away out of this world and into the mass unconscious. Women who are completely free from all of the shackles that restrain them have no place in this world. The world is not big enough to support them. They will be brought down if they stay here. They weren't going to be brought down, so let them go. I loved that ending, and I loved the imagery. After all they went through, I didn't want anybody to be able to touch them. So it's the same ending as Greece? <laughs> sure, yeah. Let's go with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we'll have some interesting things to say once we get into the meat of the conversation. I totally agree. Um, it, it's it's definitely clear that, that both you and Corey have some very strong feelings <laughs> about, about this. And I'm trying to think if there are any scenarios or situations where I could have watched this and come out of it feeling the same way that you guys did. And I'm going to have to give that some thought while we're continuing the conversation. Sure, that sounds great. So we do like to tell everybody how we watched the film this time in case you are one of the masses who have not seen this and would like to watch along with us. Uh, In the United States, it is available on Hulu. So that's how I watched it. Matthew, how did you watch it? In the UK, it's available for rental on Amazon. So I hired it and watched it on there. Very cool. And in uh, Northern Canada, we have the good old fashioned DVD. Mm, I would have expected media. nothing less from you because this is one of your favorite movies. Exactly. <laughs> okay, to into the discussion. Mandy, you've said some of your expectations, you, you knew a few of the bits of the film coming. What did you think you were going to get out of it or, or experience from this? 
Honestly, I thought I would love it. I expected it to be some sort of like buddy crime flick, I think. And I thought it was going to be this lighthearted film that would be easy to watch. I don't know why, since I did know how it ended. (laughs) You know, I, I don't ask me how my brain works. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I, I thought my reaction to it was going to be very different than it was. Have, Have you seen the trailer for it? I don't think so i think it's just that that shot at the end the final shot of Mm -hmm. the car going over the cliff is just so iconic yeah that i've seen it in places and so i just knew that's how it ends yeah you know and i didn't know what started it i i didn't know what the relationship these two women had to each other other than they were friends Mm -hmm. you know i didn't know that, that that Louise shot somebody, that this started off with murder. Mm-hmm. I had no idea, you know, and I, I did know Brad Pitt was in it. <laughs> Maybe Brad Pitt. As I think I everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I didn't know any of the events that led up to the, the final scene. Right. And, and so I think I was just expecting it to be some kind of like buddy comedy type mm-hmm. thing i don't know i i don't know it makes okay. no sense because the, the the trailer for it is quite light-hearted it does make it seem like that's the film it's going to be okay mm, it's quite interesting you listed a number of people who went into making this who again quite famous what's your experience of callie curry the writer ridley scott gina davis susan sarandon uh, the most experience that i've got i think is with gina davis and susan sarandon just because mm. They're amazing and awesome. I agree. Uh, <laughs> but when I went through the list, I was surprised, particularly with Gina Davis, how everything that I know her from is from like 80s and 90s. Mm. Mm, this period. Like it's yeah. just a very small period of time. Um, you know, Beetlejuice, The League of Their Own, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and those sorts of things. And honestly, I thought there were more, but those were the only three things on the list that I could pull out. Um, and, and Susan Sarandon. I can now add Rocky Horror to that list. Since I've seen that now. And then my favorite Disney movie in the world is Enchanted. And she played the villain in that, you know, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And, and so those are the two big things that I know her from. But she also was in, you know, the client stepmom, the American version of Shall We Dance. And so, you know, I'm kind of aware, mm-hmm. more aware of who she is as a celebrity than mm. from actually watching her work, I think. And, of course, Gina Davis uh, did a very brief run on Grey's Anatomy. And she was excellent in that. One of the best things on that that whole season. Yes, she mm. did. I forgot about that. I, I never look at the TV list when I go through the filmographies. On these. I just look at the TV, movies. right? Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I completely forgot she was on Grey's Anatomy until you said that. But you're right. That was pretty spectacular. Uh, Ridley Scott, not very much. But then his filmography is not very long either. But I have actually seen Alien. I've seen Gladiator. G.I. Jane, which is amazing, and The Martian, which I did not realize was him. I didn't know that either. And, <laughs> yeah. And then Callie Corey is the one that surprised me the most because I'm so familiar with her name. And I couldn't figure out why when I looked at her filmography and I'm like, there's nothing here. <laughs> she heard Thelma and Louise. Yeah. She didn't do anything else. Why do I know this woman's name? And it's because she's the creator of the television show Nashville, which I yeah. love. I love that show. And that's the only thing I know from her. So... I, I was watching Thelma and Louise this time thinking, the only other really southern thing like this that I can think of is Nashville. Oh, hey, look who made it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you telling me that in all of pop culture, those are the only two southern things you can think of? Well, I don't differentiate. 
like no. Okay, I I am failing as a southerner. I I need to fix this. No, okay. okay let, let me put that in better terms. I I can obviously tell the difference between what's something from north of England, north of Britain, <laughs> and from the south. In America, I I don't really differentiate. Like I'm watching it and going, oh yeah, this is clearly something set in Dallas or somewhere in Texas or in Arkansas or, or uh, California or Seattle or something. Okay. A, a lot yeah, of things I'm... we watch anyway are particularly, you know, any town America. Yeah. That well, that is true. I, mm. I can only tell when it's New York or LA ish, <laughs> and then everything else is America <laughs> somewhere. <Yeah. laughs> that is fair. Uh, I mean, because this one wasn't even really. It wasn't so much in their accents and the way they spoke, although there was a little of that. It was mostly just the music and the setting. Yeah, mm. really, the music. I mean, I loved the music. Oh yes, <laughs> I, 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 just, I love country music, and you just don't get it on this level in movies very much. It was fantastic. And so we come to the big question: Did you enjoy Thelma and Louise? <sighs> no. Not really. Oh, she said that so quietly, guys. <laughs> My so heart sorry. like broke a little when I saw that this had happened. I know. And I was like, it's going to be know. okay. We're going to change her mind. <laughs> <laughs> or accept someone else's opinion. <laughs> no, we, we like to change people's minds around here. Because so. <laughs> some people might be wrong about David Tennant. That's what you're saying, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Some people. Mm. Yeah. Who are those yeah. people? Do we even know them? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's almost worth starting at the end with that that finale because that's uh, a little divisive for what you're. As you say, it's one of the iconic endings of of en- anything in Hollywood. It's very well known. It's spoofed. It's referenced. You see it mm-hmm. in so many clip shows, and there are absolutely two ways of viewing it. There is one of, well, okay, so they did this stuff and killed themselves. Mm-hmm. That's nihilistic and then there's another way of looking at it of but they their adventure continues and they didn't get caught and at least they finished as friends and they made their own choice and so on right um mandy do you go to one of those extremes or do you see something else with this oh no this is a movie that glorifies women turning to crime and then killing themselves is really how i feel about it <laughs> and i know that's very severe and blunt but um, I'm, I'm thinking more and more about uh, that quote that you read, Allie, by, by Callie Corey. And I think the issue I have with it is from from a narrative perspective, I can't accept the ending as being symbolic when nothing else in the movie was symbolic. I would disagree because for me, this entire film is symbolic. <laughs> I mean, but when you're watching this movie, I mean, these things actually happen yeah. to the characters. You know, um, Thelma is almost raped. Uh, Louise killed him. You know, that that is not symbolic. That is a thing that happened. Right. And then they they run and they're trying to figure out what their next steps are going to be. And they pick up this young hitchhiker who steals all of their money, which in turn makes Thelma turn into an armed mm-hmm. robber. That's not symbolic. Mm-hmm. That's a choice that she made in her life. You know, and, and that is even like that's a choice. What Louise did with the rapist, I'm not even sure I would say was an actual choice like it wasn't premeditated it's just a thing that happened but Thelma chose to walk into that store with a Mm -hmm. gun and and rob it that's that's not symbolic it's a thing that happened and so when I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing all of these choices that these women are making and they're progressively getting 
I hesitate to say progressively getting worse because I mean they started with murder, <laughs> but but you know what I mean. Like the, yeah. the choices are worse. You know, it was a reaction, and then everything else after that, they start making choices that that get worse and worse, leading up to, you know, locking a cop in his trunk, not even knowing if anybody's ever going to find him. And then it ends with let's not get caught, and they drive off the cliff. Mm-hmm prompting people to shoot at them and and those sorts of things. And so I don't, I just, I can't see it as symbolic because I don't see the symbolism in the rest of the the movie. I see it very literal. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just a flaw in my perception, but that's where I'm coming from on this, if if that makes sense at all. No, it it definitely does. Like, I, I see what you're saying. And certainly, like, the things that happen in the movie do happen, right? So like you said, like, you know, she is assaulted. They do kill people. They do rob. They do all those things. Um, I think for me, what I was trying to get at, maybe what I'm trying to say more is that for me, it's kind of the, like, if I step back and I look at the things that are happening to them or that they do, I see it more in kind of like a, like for the value of the metaphor. So yes, like she does get assaulted, but what is, like, what is driving the assault is misogyny. And once you see that in the film, I feel like the film is constantly doing things, whether it's in dialogue or the way that the women are changing throughout the film, that co- consistently seem to kind of be critiquing um, misogyny, whether it's internalized in themselves, whether it's things that they're encountering in the men that they see. That's kind of how I've, I don't know, seen the film since the first time that I watched it, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a way of reading the film, uh, kind of for me, and I, I think... What I'm about to say, I might get my knuckles wrapped by Lani for reading a film wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the the protagonist of this film is women, mm-hmm. specifically these two women, and the antagonist is men and their treatment of women, misogyny mm-hmm. in its generalization. For me, the men are very one-dimensional, very stereotypical, each of them, which I, I don't know whether that helps or hinders, so I'm probably going to ask you that question in a minute, but it is about the impact that men have had on them all through their lives and is now stopping them from getting to their goal. Their goal is going off and having a nice little vacation, the two of them, and a a bit of a relaxing time. Mm -hmm. And at every stage, this is just causing them to have to work against this misogyny. Mm -hmm. The fact he's so unrepentant for uh, almost raping Thelma. Mm -hmm. It's Thelma who always goes, yeah. Um, I am going to get their names completely mixed up all the way through this. Just FYI. <laughs> no problem. Um, but he almost rapes her, and then he's unrepentant about that. And clearly, the, this is something might happen again. So she shoots him, and I, could, I can see that reaction there. And that's what then drives the film. That first anchor scene, you know, important transition, happens quite late into the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do worry <laughs> that I'm coming at this from the wrong angle, where if this was a film about men having this sort of adventure, I wouldn't even... I don't know if I would question how the women were written. That it would seem natural for there to be the strident wife who doesn't like him at all. And and the boy, the girlfriend who ignores and doesn't give enough affection. And the woman in the club who's just wanting him to buy her drinks and not actually give, any, not, not give anything back, but is flirting him just for the drinks and that's mm-hmm. it. If, if it was written that way around, I'd be like, oh yeah, I can see what they're doing here. They're showing about how if you have bad experiences, it causes you to do this thing. But when I watch it, I always look at this and go, I don't believe that the husband would be that awful all the way through and that she'd still be with him for that. But also I'm not in that culture in 1991 and I'm not a woman, so I don't know 
that I have that opinion. Or <laughs> well, I'm allowed to have that opinion. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I think, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to try and, and rein in my ranting a little bit. But I I certainly don't feel like we would have this question if the film starred two men. Because film is saturated with films that already do that. And mm. we don't have, or we often don't really have a... Um, like a criticism of women that are one dimensional is just something that, you know, like it happens sort of thing. Like if I, a good example that I can think of is uh, in Casino Royale, I think, or one of the Bond movies, I think with Daniel Craig, there's a, a woman that appears and he sleeps with her and everything. And she's never even named. Like she has, she's nothing else but a body that kind of just reflects the fact that like James Bond is like, man, he's a manly man and like he's super hetero and, you know, he's going to like do the women and do the job and he's awesome sort mm. of thing, right? So for me, I, I often see this kind of thing happen in film where like we have two men or, you know, sometimes more, but at least two men who are friends and the purpose of the women in the film is to only emphasize the fact that don't worry, like these aren't two gay characters. They they like to sleep with women, so it's okay that they're hanging out and that they love each other and whatever because they're going to go home and fuck their yeah, wives. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think I think that's a really good point because when when we have a movie like this that's starring men, we never have to wonder or question if what the motivation of the men <laughs> is. The men are just doing what men right. do. Mm. But then you get a movie like Thelma and Louise and because the main characters are women, there has to be, and I say has with quotes around it, there has to be a motivation behind it. There has to be a reason that they are the way that they are. And in this movie, it's it's starting, they're driven by the things that are happening to them by men. Yes. You know, Thelma's husband is terrible. <laughs> Thelma is assaulted. Those are the driving forces. And if Thelma and Louise were, you know, Tom and Luke, they would just be having a fun weekend and deciding to do crime rather than reacting to men in their lives. Yes, exactly. It's it, the question that you asked, Matthew, kind of ties into, uh, we're probably jumping a little bit ahead here of, of what you guys wanted to do, but it ties in um, to kind of the, the polar reactions that this film has. So you had some critics that really enjoyed the film for what it was, um, whether or not they kind of saw the uh, feminist overtones, I would say. Um, but then you also had this like intense backlash from people that, you know, thought that this film was toxic feminism and like, it's just about man hating and male bashing and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because uh, Curry actually kind of addressed that and basically, you know, summarized it as saying, before you come at me complaining about men being one dimensional, there's like a whole genre of, fear of films where women are just kind of the subject of degradation and exploitation. So until you can fix that problem, you know, don't come at me sort mm. of thing. It kind of ties into this idea that, so how do I put this? We kind of all, we all go about in the world and we all have our own prejudices, right? But the kind of, the thing that makes it racism or the thing that makes it sexism is kind of the structures that are in place that benefit the privileged, right? So I can I can be biased towards a certain kind of man because, you know, he's everything that I don't like sort of thing. But he is privileged in the system. And so it's never sexist for me to kind of not enjoy his presence or to have a criticism of him. 
Whereas when a man does that to a woman, it's just reinforcing kind of the system that's already in place and that benefits him constantly, if that makes sense. I know this is kind of like gender studies 101 and I'm probably not being super articulate about it, but that's kind of where I'm coming from it at, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. He he has structures in place to have power over her already. Yes. So him being anti her will benefit him and not benefit her, whereas her being anti him is not likely to have that impact. That's so. right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I think uh, a follow-up question, possibly for Mandy, having come to it now, so many years later, do you view this as a, a feminist text, a feminist film? Well, I certainly didn't watch it with my feminist hat on. I, I will say that. Um, I just watched Quick. I have a hard time putting the feminist hat down so I can sympathize. <laughs> like, sometimes <laughs> I wish I, I could just course. enjoy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I sat down to watch it just to watch a movie, and so I wasn't expecting it to be something that I needed to look at through different lenses, mm-hmm. I think. And, and if I had, I might feel differently about mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and I'm even like, I see where you're coming from on, on some mm-hmm. things, you know, and I like, like I can make that difference between what this movie would have looked like if it starred two men instead of two women. Like I, I can see that difference and, and why that's problematic, mm-hmm. but that for me, that still doesn't change what I get out of the movie, I think. And I, I don't really see this as empowering women. And I think that's really maybe the heart of the question Matthew's Mm -hmm. asking. And part of it is because, okay, let's, let's take Thelma. Mm -hmm. Thelma is the one I think who had the most dramatic character arc between the two. Even though Louise is the one who actually committed the murder, Thelma is the one who went from meek housewife in the beginning, who's even afraid to, ask her husband and I say ask with quotation marks around it too because she shouldn't have had to Mm -hmm. ask but you know she was afraid to like talk to her husband about going on this trip and so she ends up leaving she's so meek that when she's the first scene where she's Mm -hmm. smoking she's not actually smoking she's practicing with an unlit cigarette in her mouth in the rearview mirror and watching herself you know um she's she's very much childlike yeah absolutely but within the span of five minutes, she becomes very hypersexualized, and then she goes batshit crazy, I think. <laughs> and I, I didn't appreciate the way that that was portrayed because I didn't think it was realistic. And then using that craziness, I guess, to be the jumping off point for the assault that happens to her, which then drives the rest of the movie where she continues to be crazier and crazier and deciding that she has a knack for crime, which was a really great line, I will say. Mm -hmm. But I just, I don't view it as being empowering because I view it as being a little bit too much stereotypical and not realistic at all. I think, I think if they had toned it down a little bit and she hadn't gone straight to crazy, when you keep, because you've said crazy a number of times, when you say like her craziness starts or something, like what exactly are you referring to? So I'm mostly thinking about that that first bar scene, the one okay. where she meets uh, what's his face. I want to call Doesn't him Harvey. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, whatever his name is, where she meets him. I mean, so we've just seen her be super timid. She's terrified of her husband. She won't even smoke a cigarette. She's still being very quiet in the car. They get to the bar and it's like a f- switch gets flipped in her brain and she is immediately 
dancing crazy. She's hanging all over the stranger. She is like jumping up and down, like bouncing out of her skin almost. She can't sit still anymore. She gets drunk very, very quickly. She loses control very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And to go from one extreme to the other, to me, seems to be a, a, a stereotype, a, a trope. And mm-hmm. I don't like it. I, I don't think it presents a a good view of a woman. I I don't think that it's fair to say that every woman who has been repressed the way that Thelma has by her husband would immediately and instantaneously turn into the exact complete opposite just because she gets a little taste of freedom. I just, I don't, I don't like that. And for that to be the, the start of the movie, I think just started me on a path of not liking what I was seeing. And, and I never quite dug it out of that hole, I think. Okay, so I have a, a second question. <laughs> okay. So I'm wondering, okay, so for you, there's like this this intense switch between um, when she's in the car, kind of almost infantilized, extremely naive. Um, and then she gets to the bar and you feel that she's different. Maybe it's kind of like a comment and a question, I guess. But to me, I, I've always read that scene as Thelma just thinking, like, just being incredibly naive, right? Like, there's no reason for her to have regard up with this creepy dude who wants to buy them drinks and wants to dance with her and, you know, won't get take the hint from uh, Louise when she kind of tells him to go away because she wants to talk to her friend. Um, but he continues to pursue and to pursue. And to some degree, like, I think I get the impression and maybe I'm like, I'm completely willing to admit that I might fill in some blanks on my own. I think we all do that with any kind of text that we read. Um, but I've always read this as like Thelma having been very isolated. I think that before this movie starts, she has a kind of very controlled life. It doesn't seem like she even goes out that much. She has to be home for certain times. Her husband expects certain things from her that all seem to revolve around housework and, and being in that kind of like very private sphere. And so for me, I think when she gets out of that, she almost seems to kind of like enjoy attention because no one else has ever given her that. Like her husband's certainly not giving it to her. So in some ways, I think like she's not like too, I don't know, like she, how do I put this? She naively is like, oh, like here's a man and you know, he's being a little flirty, and, but that's fine. Like he, he's innocent. He's not going to do anything. There's nothing wrong with dancing or accepting a drink sort of thing because there shouldn't be. And so for me, that's kind of how I've always read the scene. And I'm wondering, like, can you chalk, can you chalk it up to night, like her naivete? Like, does that, does that just end for you immediately when she gets to the bar? Because I kind of feel like it goes on almost to the point where JD robs them. And then all of a sudden we have a switch where Louise falls apart and Thelma's got like her big girl pants on. She's like, we're going to do this. Like, it's fine. I'm going to take care of you. I feel like she's kind of that naive character all the way until that point. Is that okay? no, I, I can see that. Okay. That that's not how I, I saw it. Mm. I I do agree with you. There's definitely um they switch roles after JD robs them for sure. Mm-hmm. But I saw Thelma have her own arc that started with that childlike naivete mm-hmm. that very quickly turned into something else. And and maybe that's me bringing my own baggage to it and not reading it the way I'm supposed to, I think. Um, but I, I saw her as being, <sighs> I'm trying to think of the way to put it. 
It's kind of like, you know how people always say when you're raising a kid or a teenager, if, if the parent is too restrictive, mm -hmm. then when they go off to college, they're immediately going to go crazy. Yeah. And like binge drink and, you know, overdose on drugs and do all of these things that, you know, right. a, a small thing can happen. You know, I, I think that's true. I, I don't know that it's really what happens. Um, but I, I kind of feel like it, it was that sort of thing where rather than letting her gradually become the person at the end mm -hmm. who put her big curl pants on, mm -hmm. she she wasn't given the chance to actually grow. She just went from one stage to the other. And that's the thing that I that I found a problem with. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and because that's been stuck in my head, I'm, I'm having a hard time like reining it back in and trying to look at it from a different perspective and, and see if, if that whole, the whole first half of the movie is, if I need to look at it from a different, different perspective and put her in a different box than the box that I've got her in right now, mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. That's what I'm trying to do and I'm trying to talk through it and that's why it's coming through, coming through all jumbly and, and rambly and, and I, I don't know what I'm saying right now. <laughs> kind of where I am on that. <laughs> Matthew, do you have anything to add? Where are you sitting on this fence? <laughs> I think at the time it was released, 1991, I think, yes, this was a feminist film. Okay. Um, there, there has not been much like this before or since. And I think it was a, a fairly landmark thing. Part of it because it's a female writer and mm -hmm. it's... Exactly as we were just saying, the two main characters are very much the sorts of characters you would find in such a film, but they're now women. So we're mm -hmm. treating it differently and thinking about it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And we've had films akin to this since Monster springs straight to mind. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I've read a few things in the week. Um, there were a few, a number of articles written about this over the last couple of years because it's hit 25 years. There's been a celebration of, of cinema and Hollywood since then and, and how things have changed. And people talking about oh, this film wouldn't be made now or it couldn't be made now and they wouldn't allow it to be done and, and, and all of this. And I, I feel a little bit like we've actually moved on from the point of a film being like this. It's now, you could do this film, but why? Because we've already had Thelma and Louise and Thelma and Louise has elements of it that are not elaborated as well as they could be. So the, the male characters, almost with the exception of Harvey Keitel, maybe my, Michael Madsen, are very one-dimensional. And, and just demonstrating a certain uh, sort of misogyny or a certain way that men try to control or behave around women. So actually you could make a film that elaborates on other characters and have different relationships being shown. And that then leads us to a world where you could do Ghostbusters and it's all women and there's some of that misogyny and some of that treatment in there. You could have, obviously Wonder Woman is the big modern example of it, but, but other films that have been made recently... I would disagree. Well, yeah, well, that's yeah. that's then then leading me into my question of: Do you think there is still scope for a film like this or something like this that's needed? Yes, because I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I feel like so much of the film that I end up watching is stories about men, and it would be really nice to have more stories about women. <laughs> I also think part of what I was saying or whispering uh, my disagreement about is actually. I know that uh, this is going to be so controversial, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I I cannot, in my right mind, hold up Wonder Woman as like some beacon of uh, feminist film, and everything should you know aim for that, and and we can just build on that. 
the difference between Wonder Woman for me and Thelma and Louise is that Thelma and Louise is so clearly not a film made for men to watch. Like it, it is not a gaze. The, the camera doesn't have a male gaze to it. We're never kind of like running down women's bodies. We're never calling them out for being beautiful or emphasizing that. Like it's it's so subtle the way that they embrace their femininity, but not in a way that kind of just screams like, you should really, like if you're a woman, you should want to be her. And if you're a man, you should want to have sex with her which is exactly what Wonder Woman did. I watched that film and about every 10 to 15 minutes, some random character was telling me like, oh my gosh, Wonder Woman is the most beautiful woman that ever walked the planet. And so much of that film was about kind of sexualizing her. And I can't in my right mind put Thelma and Louise and Wonder Woman in the same category. So for me, um, I'm still waiting for more films like Thelma and Louise to be around. My Max Fury Road, I think did an incredible job. That was a great film. And of course, uh, Charlize Theron is in it, so that's incredible on its own. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. I would kind of argue that Atomic Blonde is also uh, a fantastic film that isn't doing a um, a male gaze. But for me, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to start rambling, but there's kind of right now. I feel our market is um, focused on this like thing where feminism is attractive and marketable. So we're just going to label our things feminism. And we're going to do the bare minimum to try and meet that criteria so that we can just capitalize on people wanting to see a feminist film, right? So Wonder Woman called itself feminist and didn't feature any people of color. They got called out for it. So they threw in two people at the beginning and then the rest of it was, you know, white, white, white. Um, I don't know, like Mad Max Fury Road featured um, disability and featured non-traditional femininity and also, um, you know, featured very traditional femininity, but there was still something about those women, the the four um, that they rescued, that felt less one-dimensional than the kind of typical um, portrayal of women that we see when they're extremely beautiful and they're just there to kind of serve a male purpose, right? Those women weren't doing that. They were escaping that. So I will, I will stop rambling now um, and you can just put me back on the right path. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm listening to you talk and I'm having all these thoughts and part of them are that sometimes I feel like I'm a terrible feminist. (laughs) Okay. Can I just, I'll just jump in. I, so here's the thing. This happens a lot where I don't know, like I hate that people kind of, um, feel like if, if someone presents a critique of something, um, or like, you know, your feminism isn't intersectional or that kind of stuff, it immediately kind of turns people off and then they don't want to be associated with that. And really, like, feminism should just come down to the basics of, do you want equality for women? Yes, then you are a feminist, right? Um, and Okay, well, well, by that yardstick, yes, I am definitely 100% absolute feminist. And, I mean, I, I don't really question, you know, whether or not I am because I, I, I know that I am, but... <laughs> Specifically talking about, um, I, w- I want to bring this back to Thelma and Louise and then Wonder Woman, because those, mm-hmm. for me, Wonder Woman was important, and Wonder Woman did something in film that I personally have not really seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about male gaze or anything mm-hmm. like that. I'm talking about a character specifically like Diana. You know, we get, uh, it, like in the MCU, Yes, there are characters like Diana. We've got the Black Widow. We've got the Scarlet Witch. But they're never the focus of the story. They're mm-hmm. always in the background. We mm-hmm. get Iron Man. We get Thor. Totally. You know, on the DC side, we get the Suicide Squad. But we don't really get to see Harley Quinn. She's in the mm-hmm. background. Yes. 
And and even her origin story, the way it was presented in Suicide Squad, is something that happened to her. It wasn't a choice that she made. Right. So we don't ever have strong female representation. And so for me, Wonder Woman gave me that. Wonder Woman gave me something that I haven't seen on screen really since Buffy. Okay. You know, and it was on such a grander scale that it meant something specifically to me. You know, I had a very visceral and emotional reaction watching her on screen. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at Thelma and Louise and try to paint it with the same light, the difference for me is I don't see any sort of feminist representation in Thelma and Louise because I don't see anyone in that movie that I would aspire to be like. I don't see anybody in that movie who looks like me. I don't mm. see anybody in that movie who thinks like me. Mm. And and so for me, I think that's the difference and that's why I'm struggling with looking at it with the feminist lens on. Because yes, I do understand that it's a response to misogyny, mm-hmm. which is inherently a feminist thing, mm. you know, speaking out against misogyny and and doing something about it you know they by the end yes they're taking control of their lives Mm -hmm. I, i can say that but they're doing so in a way that i don't agree with and that i don't approve of and so for me it's not something that i can sit here and say i think this is a wonderful movie that should be lauded because from my perspective it's not does that make sense Mm. yeah it it does i just maybe want to clarify like i the when it comes to like diane as a character like i can certainly see how like how that representation would mean something to like a number of people um so like my my kind of criticism of the film is not rooted in her as a character i appreciate her as a character as like a you know kind of like spearheading the film and it's her story and and her choices sort of thing that kind of stuff like i'm on board with it's just kind of like the grander scheme of of Wonder Woman that doesn't totally work for me. But I'm glad that you took away something from it. And I'm glad that other people are taking away something for it. I, I don't want to, you know, hate Wonder Woman so much that we just don't make female heroes. That would be stupid. Um. <laughs> Mandy, on your point about uh, seeing seeing yourself, seeing someone who represents you in this film, we had a, a great comment from uh, Abigail, who I think this might be her three-peat for... Uh, Comments on the show, so well done, Abby. Uh, this A. Shaw on Twitter said that she remembers Thelma and Louise as the first film I liked where I noticed I was meant to identify with adult women and that confused and interested me. Um, I dug into that a little bit more with her and she talked about how this was the first film that she'd seen that had adult women doing more than falling in love with men, mm-hmm. uh, that they had an adventure. Um, and then the fact that at, at the end as well, it's a very different ending than you might expect from this sort of film, and that, that they were allowed to do that. That I think, obviously, she's taking the point of it's their choice to, to try and continue it on, and mm-hmm. whatever happens, happens. Um, but the film lets them do that was something different than had been seen before. And I, that's kind of, for me, why I think this is a bit a film of its time, because it was representative in a way that hadn't really been done so much, and yet you come to it now, and we're in a world, we're in a post-Buffy world, we're in a world where we have... Um, superhero films with a, with a woman one admittedly but we have I, i've mentioned ghostbusters we've mentioned fury road but we have uh, comedies that are female-led and female ensembles and comedies not necessarily to the representation diversity that we might want but much more so than we did in 1991 right so i think this is a step on that path is, is perhaps what i was trying to get to yeah um you know this 
this might be a bit of an overshare, but that's fine. Um, so this film, so we talked about how representation matters or how you, Mandy specifically said you couldn't really like see yourself in Thelma or Louise. I probably connect a lot with this film because like I have been assaulted. So for me, like I, I see so much of like my life in both of those characters, like the, the parts of me that were prior to that are so much like Thelma and the parts of me that were after that. And like, you know, more or less like now in my life are so much like Louise in the sense of like, it's just something that like we don't talk about and like it's embedded in decisions that we make and it's embedded in this like trying to, trying to like both escape a world in which like things like this happen. And, you know, like it's not, it's not just me. I know tons of my friends that this has happened to. So it's like, I just can't, escape that and I never see outside of that because I feel like you know despite the fact that yes like not all men are this way most men are this way and so for me like that's the part of the film that continues to speak to me every time I watch it because like it for me it feels like how great would it be if I could just if I could just get out if I could just be like a a full person that wasn't you know in relation to men at all times which is how I feel so many films are kind of like where women only exist in the space where we're talking about a man, we're falling in love with a man. Um, mm. You know, fortunately in the last like few years, we've had a little bit more of like lesbian relationships and those kinds of things, but it's, there's kind of, there's something here in this film that to me really broaches into this like just fully formed person. Like there's so much um, desires and like choices and things that happen to them that, it, it, for me, I can't like ever see them as just being like a stereotype or a box because I feel like each of them are so different and so unique to anything that I've ever seen before. And I see, like I said, I see so much of myself in both of these characters at different times in my life that that's how I connect with the film. And that's how I'm sure lots of people that I know also connect with the film, probably because of that, but also, you know, similar interests. So, you know, we put our little feminist hat on and, and this is how we see the film. Um, so that's just me speaking to that, I guess. I, I think that that's valuable. I mean, I think not that you need me to tell you <laughs> that that's valuable, but I, I think, you, <laughs> I think that's, it's, I think that's important for me to hear from you though, because those are things that aren't going to immediately pop into my head because that's not something I personally can relate to. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I need to hear that. I, I need to know why this would be important to mm-hmm. somebody else because it's, I mean, my life is not the same as everybody else's life. Your life is not the same as everybody else's life. And we always view things through the lenses of our own experiences. Right. And so I, that's one of the reasons why I love having people on the show with me because I do get to hear from other people why things matter to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that's just important to the human experience. So thank you for sharing with us mm-hmm. and thank you for you know, not being upset with me for not liking this thing <laughs> that means so much to you. I could never hate you, Mandy. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to have different opinions. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, it's so, it, it hurts my heart a little bit every time my opinion is different from somebody else's uh, when we're on the show, though, just because, you know, we, we, we have people on the show who we call super fans, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's something 
that has had a profound impact on your life, be it, you know, just because it's something that you can quote every word of, like I can do with Buffy, or it's something that has, you know, shifted your worldview, or if it's something that you just relate to strongly. And, and so when I'm coming at it differently, it, it does hurt my heart a little bit. And so I do appreciate having folks come on who can, you know, help me see things differently. And I think there, there is a criticism of films like this that feature the experiences of women that uh, the thing it goes to is uh, rape or sexual, sexual violence of some sort. But I think that's because it is so prevalent there. I think there was a study the other day of one in three or one in four women have, have been the subjects of sexual violence. And it, it is the thing that is used against women. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like, And people always toss around like the stats, right? Um, but it actually took me being in a class like I was for this one and looking around and realizing that out of the like 20 people that I was sharing a room with, that meant five of us that this had happened to. Mm. So that's why I feel like on a, on a greater scale, films like this would be important. Um, I, I agree to some degree that like there is kind of a tropiness to it, right? That this is always a thing we're going to default on, but at the same time, it, because it's so literally prevalent and at the same time, both metaphorically like means so much because it's just like the entire embodiment of misogyny. That's why it, it continues to get used. So it, you know, I kind of go back and forth about how much I actually enjoy this kind of thing coming up when we're t- trying to tell stories about women or women em- emancipating themselves from men because of sexual assault or any other kind of assault. Um, so I kind of just go back and forth with it. So I, I never really come down hard on the line. I think it changes depending on the day and the mood that I'm in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, there, there are times it's used gratuitously. Uh, yes. This is a film I think it is used absolutely appropriately. Agreed. Mm. So, is there something we've not touched on that we wanted to cover in this area of the film? Um, I think one thing that we didn't touch on that I think also speaks to some metaphorical values of the film, (laughs) which I know Mm -hmm. that not everyone saw, but that's fine. I just wanted to know, like, how do you... How do you make sense of like the extent to which these women are chased by the police? Like, they they call in this bureau um, when they're still only wanted for questioning... I mean, at the end of the film, Thomas says, like, it's like an army out there. Like, there's just this insane fleet of uh, vehicles and a helicopter and all of that. And yes, like, yes, they've committed crimes. I'm certainly not going to deny that. Um, But it kind of seems to me like we wouldn't see this in a film where, like, other men do it. You know, like, if we think about, I think I, I have a stat in here somewhere about Die Hard 2, where there's, like, 246 deaths. And you know nobody's like really chasing into the same degree if if that makes sense like it feels like way too much for just the the circumstances of the women and it's weird to me because the the main police guy the guy that you know seems to be somewhat all right he seems to be kind of on their side and kind of saying things like when he interrogates jd he says that you know like if you hadn't have robbed them do you think they would have done this thing so in some sense i i see him as this character that kind of understands from the inside the influence that he and his male counterparts have on the world because these women have only done the things that they've done as a response to misogyny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyways, just to get back to the original question, which was, did it strike you at all as 
weird or like what was the film trying to tell you by having so many people involved in trying to track down these two people which for half of the film we're told only are only wanted for questioning like they're not being charged they just want to talk um and then of course by the end you know then then they are being charged for things but i don't know if, if you kind of felt anything about that kind of militarization or um that kind of thing going on <laughs> it didn't really strike me as strange but i mean i've watched a lot of action movies okay you know? so i i think in you know in in reality it would have been strange but in the movie it didn't it didn't really raise any red flags for me okay partially because uh when what's his face the seemingly nice guy was brought in um it was because they knew that the women had crossed state lines and mm. so it had to go to national jurisdiction that's mm. why it went to him and that made sense and then at the end there weren't that many people going after them until they kept running mm. and i think it just feels like a protocol to me that someone who is clearly armed is running from you and you're trying to catch them you know you you kind of have to do what you have to do mm -hmm. it probably was a little bit over the top but in in the world of movie land it, it just didn't strike me as odd right so i obviously i also see it as being kind of over the top so and again this is with my little feminist hat on but i saw that right. as like you know the there's just this like army of like men and they're all policemen which is you know an embodiment of masculinity onto itself but wanting to bring them back into that kind of like repressive patriarchal society where if we can just get them in and you know tell them it's all going to be okay then they'll go back to their homes and and they'll be little obedient housewives and everything will be fine and if we can't do that then we have to punish them in the most extreme way possible which is by you know trying to shoot them to death <laughs> <sighs> But, you know, that's, that's sad. <laughs> this is just how I feel the movie is trying to, I feel like that's what the film is trying to tell me. Um, again, this is, you know, that's my viewing. I understand that not everyone will see it that way. Um, but I know that, you know, like I, as I said, I've watched this film in undergrad. So I've also read um, like scholarly articles on it that also inform my kind of opinion now. Um, but the, again, Everyone can see it however they want to see it. I'm, I'm not bothered by that. <laughs> well, I think it helps. I mean, one, you've, you've seen it a lot. Mm -hmm. And you've also seen it with the screenwriter's words. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you've been able to view it through the lens, which she intended. And I didn't have that. I just went into it blind. Yeah. You know, watching it for face value i guess yeah the, the first time i saw it the first time i saw it i didn't um like i didn't have those words kind of imprinted on me i i only knew about them i don't know on my second or third watch but um that's when more of a like feminist understanding of the film came in for me so i understand how that helps inform my viewing and seeing it the way that that she intended i'm gonna make a controversial statement here in right. addition to the many controversial statements i've already made today all right <laughs> I think, honestly, the reason I don't really like this movie is because I don't find Thelma or Louise very likable as people. And that's why I don't like it. Mm. I think... I I don't know that I can elaborate on that very much. I think, I think that just is what it is. Do you think that at the start of the film, through their introduction, or their characters by the end of it? A little bit of both, I think. Um... Part of it is I, I got very frustrated watching the movie because these two women who are supposed to be best friends 
basically argued with each other the entire movie. There were times, though, where when they really needed each other, they were there for each other. You know, like when you said Thelma put her big girl pants on and, and really <laughs> helped Louise at the end, you know, and, and Louise stepped up to help Thelma when, you know, she was in trouble in the mm-hmm. beginning. But if you if you read through my thoughts, Doc, I think I noted a couple of times, oh, they're fighting again. Oh, they're fighting mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, they're arguing again. And so I just I didn't see a friendship that I would want to have. And I didn't really see characters who were people that I liked. Um, I mean, I, I certainly didn't like Thelma at the beginning because I, I would never want to be the, the kind of person who would have to ask her husband for permission to go out, you know. But by the end of it, when they continue to make poor life choices... I don't like that either. So, like, what was the alternative for you? Like, in the world where you have complete control of this movie, what what do you change? Like, how do you reroute it? I'm curious. Is it, like, at what point do they turn themselves in? Do they not shoot the, shoot the rapist in the first place and just go to the cottage? Like, what is what is the story that you would want to be there? I think I, I I don't know specific details that that I would change at the moment, but I think I would probably have turned it into some sort of happy, empowering ending to me. Um, something where maybe they do get caught, but they get caught before their crime spree escalates, and you know, they're given the opportunity to explain what actually happened. And, you know, they, they aren't charged. They're, they're let off because it was self-defense. And yes, but how often does that actually happen? (laughs) But it's also a movie, so it can happen. (laughs) I think I am one of those very naive people who like happy endings. And this movie was very dark and very depressing. And that's why I struggle with it I think it's so interesting because for me (laughs) I I mean I know we're just going back and forth um for me like I always find this movie like enjoyable I mean like there are dark elements to it of course because there has to be but I I never felt that way and it's it's weird because like I obviously I would have read um your thoughts doc so you watched it uh I'm actually not sure when but I watched it last night just to kind of refresh my memory about the film and I also kind of did a, a list of Allie's thoughts um, after I had read yours to try and see what you were seeing and whether or not I could kind of like understand where you're coming from, that kind of stuff. And it's it's so interesting how people experience things so differently because I never felt like they were arguing. <laughs> I tried to find it and I was really? like, what part is she talking about where they're arguing? <laughs> like there's, a, I mean, there's a little bit of like, banter like bickering and like you know i think um louise is more apt to kind of shut down thelma and say like this is what we're going to do just kind of sit tight and and i'm going to hold the reins sort of thing but i never felt Mm -hmm. that they were arguing yeah so one of my thoughts here is 45 minutes into this movie and these two have done nothing but fight (laughs) and then three thoughts later oh hey the ladies are fighting again I mean, so they, from the beginning, they were fighting in the bar at the beginning because Thelma didn't want to leave and Louise did, you know, and then after the, the, 
the murder happened, they're fighting in the car because they don't, they're both scared and they don't know what to do or what's going to happen. And it just... I think there's a difference between fighting and, like, having a little bit of conflict with somebody else. Like, I think that drives most of the interactions we have with people, right? Like, we're conflicting opinions right now, and that's fine, but I wouldn't say we're arguing. No, no, we're, <laughs> we're not arguing, but I think Thelma and Louise were definitely arguing a lot. Yeah, at, at the beginning of the film, I, I think I'm – I can see what you're saying, Mandy, because I'm – my question is always, like, what, why – is Louise friends with her? I can't see that she's enjoying spending time with her or getting anything out of this. And she's just seeming cross and wanting to be like, no, come over here and do this. No, stop doing this. Why are you taking that thing? I don't think it's going to be. She does not look like she's having fun with her. Oh, that's so interesting. So, but I, 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 I can let go of that by most of the way through the film and see like, okay, they do support each other and they're, they're, they're going away on a break together and they, they like spending time together. In a, you know, they're very close friends. There's never any hint in this film of, oh, th- this could be an underlying romantic relationship. This is pure friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question that these two women care very deeply for each other. Mm. That that was never a question for me. It was just interesting that they were not having any fun together, which oh, is a terrible mm. thing to say because they're on the run after committing murder. So they probably shouldn't be having any fun together, but they just, I don't know, they they seemed at odds almost the entire time. And and some of it I completely understand. Like, I mean, I totally get Louise being really upset that, that Thelma left JD in the room with all the money because... I mean, Thelma, honey, he just told you that he robbed all these places. Yeah. Why are you going to leave him with all your money? Um, you know, and, and stuff like that, but... And, and and stress makes people do crazy things. It just it, it wasn't super fun to watch. I think is is what I'm trying to say. I think if we're talking in terms of changing parts of the film, um, for me, I, I, I always feel like it could lean a little bit heavier on the misogyny earlier, and perhaps that can actually be um, they do try to hand themselves in, but they see very quickly whilst they're trying to say it's self defence, they're going to be prosecuted for first degree murder and. No one's going to believe them. And that's where they go, right, no, we we need to go on the run. I'm not going down for this, for having shot this guy who raped you or tried to rape you. Um, it's done through what they tell us. They say, no one's going to believe us. Do you think that's ever going to happen? But um, I would like to have seen it or, or as I say, lean, leaned on it a little bit heavier. And then perhaps not delivered the moment where Gina Davis starts laughing about the shooting of the uh, the rapist or the would-be rapist. Um, but then it becomes her saying that's what she thinks happened to Louise in Texas. Because Louise has said she, she hates Texas and never wants to go there. Um, I think at that point it kind of tries to make it textual that that's what happened to her. And I, for me, I would have preferred it had they not had that. Had they just left it that something happened to her that informs the rest of the film and allows us to make our own minds up about it. But I know I'm coming, again, I'm coming in with my own sort of prejudices that I like a film that does that, that allows me to make up some of my own mind on things. Right. All I can really say is that for me, the experience of women just inherently knowing that they're not going to be believed, that there's no evidence that, um, you know, like there were witnesses that would say certain things because we all internalize misogyny, whether or not we um, are aware of it, because that's the, si- that's the society we live in. Um, all of those things for me are very real. And so I, I see no need to have a scene where they're not believed because 
That's okay. that for me. That's a a lived reality with like tons of other people that I know. I'm like every woman that I know. I know would. It's such a huge, like I don't want to say like burden, but like when you realize that like out of like ninety nine rapes, like three people go to jail. It just seems kind of unfathomable that you can't like that going to the cops is a solution that's actually going to pan out, and that not to mention like all the trauma that you endure, you know trying to go through that process and trying to get someone prosecuted and having to be in the same room as them and having to tell strangers about what happened to you. Like all of that is stuff that I just, I don't feel like it's something that most women are willing to take on because the odds are so stacked against us when it comes to this kind of thing. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Right. And here's like, and here's the thing, I guess, but like we've, we've already said, um, you know, that this world is fiction. We could do anything that we wanted with it, right? So that's kind of why I, I buy into this idea of the film being feminist because like that's the bit where for me it explicitly makes itself as such. It says this world is the world that you already know and we're going to try and do something to these characters that isn't possible for you because that's the only way you're going to be, be able to kind of experience it. Do you know what I mean? We're, like mm-hmm. the emancipation of... Like getting out of like this like repressive society. I think I'm just having trouble trying to think of, of the best way to, to say this. I feel like I'm being like this hard ass who has this one perspective and cannot change. It's kind of what I'm feeling like right now. And I I don't like it. <laughs> but I don't know how to not be this way right this moment. Um I have a really hard time with the idea of suicide being presented as freedom. And that's still what I'm seeing, despite mm-hmm. hearing Callie Corey's words mm-hmm. and understanding what she intended. Mm-hmm. That's not what I see. And I can't figure out how to not see what I see, if that makes sense. Yeah. I can't figure out how to take these two women driving a car off a cliff into the Grand Canyon, even though, yes, they, I mean, it was very clearly a choice to have that final shot be the car flying in the air. We don't see it land. We don't see them die. We don't see the car explode. But we also know that that is the only way this could end. Right. You know, I mean, in, in this world, As far as we know, as far as we've been shown, this world follows the standard rules of physics that we know. So that car (laughs) did not fly off like the car at the end of Greece. That car sank Mm -hmm. to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You know, they did not walk away from that. If they did walk away from it, then they got caught. Mm -hmm. The only way to not get caught was to not walk away. And so I can't see that as anything other than committing suicide. Right. Um, so here's what I would say. Um, if I if I try and remove my kind of metaphorical viewing hat where I'm like, freedom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would certainly agree with you that kind of doing the association between suicide and freedom is something that I, I don't like for obvious reasons. Um, I hope that anybody who ever is thinking about that doesn't you know, like, don't, we shouldn't making, we shouldn't be making that connection explicit or something to kind of strive for, right? Um, I think for me, like, one of the, my favorite lines towards the end of this movie is Thelma telling Louise 
something's crossed over in me and I can't go back. I just couldn't live. And for me, like that is the embodiment of her, like her naivete is, is no longer there. Like she's, she's so aware that kind of just men are shit. (laughs) I mean, there's a few good ones, but, but like the society isn't, isn't there to help her and isn't there to try and, and do anything for her. And in that sense, like it, it kind of makes sense to me that like some sort of like death would be the preferred way to go on because she can't go back. Like there's no way that this woman, like knowing what she knows, can ever go back to like a normal kind of society, go back to her husband and make him dinner every night and whatever the hell else she does. I just don't think it's possible for that. Um, but just to reiterate, like I, I see what you're saying in terms of like there being a problematic element if you if you see this film as they die at the end and it's a suicide and you're supposed to associate that with the freedom, I, I can sympathize with how that would be kind of jarring or not something that you want to see or not something that you want to enjoy or like relish in or any of those things, right? Right. Okay. I think this is so interesting because I, I, I'm not sure that we've ever had one quite so divisive <laughs> really oh. i'm so sorry oh i don't I mean, know if you, listen like... back, if you listen back to monty python the holy grail i think that well that was gonna blows, be the one so. that i referenced <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one that you're you're right that one, but on a different level i think monty python though oh that's such an interesting movie but anyway <laughs> We don't have to. I think Allie and I are on the same page with Monty Python, though, so we're good. It's just so weird. Like, (laughs) you have to be in such a bizarre mood to watch that movie and actually enjoy it. And most of the time, I still don't enjoy it because I'm kind of like, this is just weird and annoying. Yeah. (laughs) I I think as much as... um... I think we all have slightly different opinions. We have slightly different opinions on the, on this film. Mm-hmm. It is a film that has a lot of depth to it. You can see the quality of it there. That there is a lot you can read, and that it speaks to different people from different aspects. So it, it has quality, at least in that measure. Yeah, I would absolutely yeah. agree with that. It's well put. Thank you. So, if we want to talk about that quality, let's talk about some of our favorite things in the film. Well, I have actually mentioned a few things that I liked. Mm-hmm. There were a few lines I think specifically. You know, I really liked. Thelma saying that she thinks she has a knack for this shit. Mm-hmm. It made me laugh. I liked it. Um, I think my f- very, very favorite thing were the small things in Susan Sarandon's performance. Mm-hmm. And I noticed it um, at the end after they lose the money and, and she just finally breaks down completely. You know, she's she's trying to light a cigarette and her hand is just shaking. Mm-hmm. She's trembling. And, you know, she doesn't have any lines there. You can just kind of see her body reacting mm-hmm. to what has happened to her. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, she She's spectacular. And uh, we did – we had a lot of folks on Twitter also respond to Susan Sarandon mm-hmm. um, just because she is pretty amazing. And I wanted to, to point out um, our friend at Joss Ruckus – uh, she said, can we just hand over the keys to everything to Susan Sarandon? Ride or die friendship literally starts here. And I thought I thought that was a really good way to kind of sum up just the epicness of Susan Sarandon's performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have never watched a film that she's in and disliked it. 
I'm almost positive. I mean, I haven't seen tons of her work, but the things right. that I've seen her in, I'm just like, you're amazing. Like, mm. be my mom or something. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and the um, the other thing that I really liked um, is something that I learned from Lonnie. Mm. There was a great three beat in this movie of the truck driver. Mm-hmm. And I hated this man. He was a pig. <laughs> he was awful. But the three beat was just so fantastic, you know, because we got the, the moment where he's a pig. We've got the second one where they catch up to him again. And he is, you know, they reinforce that stereotype. He's a pig again. And then the third time we get him, they subvert it. And they kind of convince him to pull off the road. They're going to do these things to him that he wants to have done. And then they freaking blow up his truck. Mm-hmm. They certainly <laughs> do. And I thought that was amazing. Yes. Um, both from a storytelling perspective of just getting that in throughout the story and doing it in such um, a way that flowed yes, and also kind of showing some of the character growth that these girls had. They went mm-hmm. from in the beginning to just, you know, kind of silently and quietly between each other talking about how gross he was mm-hmm. to being more vocal about it the second time and, and like trying to cut off his truck, but not actually doing anything to him to, in the end, these women have grown in themselves mm-hmm. and now they are going to make this guy pay. And I did enjoy that. See, Ma- Mandy, you did wear a feminist hat a little bit. You see it. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it in, in small moments. In small How moments, about that? that's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that guy was, uh, I think, the embodiment of misogyny. So I was quite glad to see the uh, truck explode and uh, masculinity mm. so fragile with him on the ground. <laughs> yes, I, I did. I enjoyed that very much. So. Um, Allie, why don't you tell us what your favorite moments are without cheating and saying the whole movie? <laughs> sure. Um, I also agree. I, I, Like I said, I love Susan Sarandon. I think um, Gina Davis is also perfect. Um, if I recall correctly, I actually think I read a piece of trivia where um, she was uh, they were having such a hard time finding women to play these roles, supposedly, um, that at the time that they signed Gina Davis, her contract actually was um, that she had to kind of play either part depending on which what mm-hmm. the casting other choices were for obviously her counterpart so i think that's really um yeah it's really kind of interesting um i think that like there's never a moment where i i don't believe them like you mandy i saw there's just such like little things in the performance that really just kind of sell it so hard um like even the moment where um before louise shoots rapist man um like there's like this like holding of tears in her eyes and she's like so mad but like she's so hurt like she can't believe that like this is something that she's encountering again in her life mm-hmm. even like i know it's not happening to her but just kind of being present or knowing somebody to which this has happened to and same thing with like Gina Davis like i think that transformation from her being this like little um, naive housewife who's never been with anybody else to exploring her desires, including sexual ones, um, to kind of just embracing herself as like as a fully formed woman and not at the same time, not c- kind of conforming to these kind of like traditional, you know, feminine looking um, stereotypes. And this kind of ties into something else I like, which is the costuming. So for me, like when I watch this film, it's, it's so interesting and the costuming is so well done because at the beginning, 
I feel like the women are dressing themselves in a performative way, kind of like as the way that society thinks that they should dress. In other words, how men think that they should dress. So they're wearing a lot of makeup and they have their hair kind of all done. They're wearing like very neat clothing. And by the time we get to the end of the film, there's like, we still know that they're women. They're still like exuding this femininity, but it's a femininity that comes from them. Like it's something that they're doing for themselves. You know, at one point, like I think one of them even like tosses the lipstick away sort of thing. So it's not about, it's not about that performance of going out into the world and being a woman. It's knowing that you are a woman from the inside and kind of just embodying that in your presence. So for me, the costuming is something that I actually really like. Um, and I think we often kind of make the mistake of thinking like these fantastical films like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or whatever, like the costuming, because it's so different to real life. We think of that as more work, but actually um, it's just as much work, right, to kind of resemble real life and, and to make those transitions. So I just think it's fantastic. And the other thing that I really enjoy, um, this happens to me, it's the weirdest fluke of all of all eternity, really. Um, but my favorite films somehow always have Hans Zimmer doing the music or the scoring. And this film is no exception. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What other films that you love has he done? Well, he's done all the uh, scoring for the Christopher Nolan films. And I really liked Christopher Nolan until I saw Dunkirk and then I was disappointed. But that's that's another thing. So, (laughs) um, but he's done that. Um, He's done the scoring in what Lion King is an iconic one. Um, yeah, he did the score for, um, it's complicated with Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin, which I think is like a great movie. I know it's not like super well received, but I really enjoy that movie. So if it's not on your list or, and you haven't seen it add it. (laughs) Um, but there's a, I'm pretty sure I did see it. There's a few far uh, in there. Yeah. Okay. Gladiator is the one of his that I always like. Yes. Um, That's got a terrific score. And and again, Ridley Scott. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And and the the thing you're saying on the uh, the clothing, mm-hmm. it's it's they're dressed really well because they start sharing some of the clothing and using it in different ways, but each other's. Yeah. So it sort of shows that connection between them as it, as it's as it's going on and how close they're becoming. Yes, absolutely. I also have favorite lines, but maybe Matthew wants to share his overall things <laughs> <laughs> first. I have to mention. That the scene between JD and Gina Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gina Davis, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Pitt looks good. He <laughs> looks good. Um, and I appear to be alone in this. <laughs> You're not. not. <laughs> I. You guys are two against one. Um, so, I, like, obviously, like, objectively, I guess Brad Pitt is attractive. I, I've never seen it. Like, I've I've never found him to be somebody that, like, oh, like I just wish we could spend the day together and walk on the beach and, you know, maybe get funky in the sheets. Um, he's just not that kind of guy for me, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but I can appreciate that he looks good and, yes, he's young and very fit. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't marry him. Um, <laughs> if that's one of the choices. But, but for that matter, Gina Davis does as well. Um, you were saying earlier there's no male gaze in this film mm-hmm. i think this scene has it has in equal proportions the look at, at him and the look at her yeah they both look great together and for me i think it's quite a steamy sex scene it's so i is. do <laughs> um i i worry a little bit that there's a little bit of mis not i'm not even sure this is misogyny but that she she needs to get laid really well once and then she's a proper woman and she can put on her big girl pants 
this is what happens in Wonder Woman as well. <laughs> but your mm, criticism yeah. is uh, is one that happens a lot for sure. Um, so I can I can absolutely see that. I I choose to view that scene as um, Thelma kind of coming to realize that she has desires of her own, including sexual mm. ones, and is finally kind of able to live that out. Um, I don't get the impression that her and her husband even sleep together. So. Um, I think it's kind of like really interesting. Like she's never been with anybody but that man um, who would have been a little boy when she first started going out with him or whatever. So mm. I, I kind of view that scene that way, but I can also like sympathize with what you're saying as well. Yeah. Again, it's, it's a very masculine take on, on the treatment of women in these sorts of films. Mm-hmm. But we had a, an interesting comment from Katie Sheru on Twitter who said, Brad Pitt, no, thank you. Michael Madsen, yes, please. <laughs> and he is also wonderful in this film. Um, he is totally different than basically any other film he's in where he's normally quite antagonistic and fairly gruff and in this he's actually quite gentle there is a real sense that he cares for Louise as much as he's not what she needs or or what would be good for her right Um, but he is excellent on the on the note of Jimmy I guess I think it's really interesting we've talked about I know I'm probably backtracking a little bit so I apologize Um, but we've talked about how you guys are kind of feeling that um, the males are all stereotypes. And I was really trying to pay attention when I watched last night. And I actually felt that aside from like the caricatures that we get, so, you know, truck man, pathetic husband, (laughs) those people, like we still have men that actually kind of like are, are individuals, like they're, they can be, identified apart from the other people that we see right so i would argue that you know jd we learned a lot about him like we know who he is we know what he's about we know the same thing about Hal, our kind of investigative officer that seems to be a little bit on the side of the women and then we also have jimmy who i felt especially for some reason watching the film this time i felt he was actually giving this like really complex masculinity where like you know, he he offers her a ring and she says, you're only doing that because you thought I was going to be with someone else, but he still wants to give it to her. And, and he's like, all like confused about how he's supposed to feel and what he's supposed to do. Should he let her go? Um, and he like, at least I feel like he, he loves her and he's trying to do right by that and to let her make her own choices. So it's interesting to me that, like I said, like the, the main men, aside from caricature, pathetic husband, which... Like that's a purposeful caricature in my opinion, and then the um, truck driver and also a rapist, I guess, is a caricature or stereotype. But we still do have like strong male presences in this film that aren't stereotypes, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Harvey Keitel and Michael Madsen are the two I would call out as giving something a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but given there are three women in this film, maybe four. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is, is all men. And, and I can understand what they're doing. They're giving us these portrayals of this is the world of men and this is how shit men are. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can buy it. Um, <laughs> it. It stands out to me, but I, I'm coming from that as a man. So mm-hmm. those are characters I'll watch. Not saying I wouldn't watch women, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ali, are you, are you saying that you actually liked Jimmy as a person? So here's the thing. I... I don't know that I like him, but I like the complexity of bringing a character like him to the movie, if that makes sense. Okay. Like, I I don't think he's a great dude by any means, but I think, 
I think he's putting in more effort than kind of your bog standard box stereotype of a man in this film. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to clarify yeah, that because no I did not like Jimmy at all. That's fair. Um, he, he struck me as slightly abusive, even though we didn't see him actually hit Louise. Yeah, I wasn't a um, fan of that. We didn't see him destroy the room because he got angry and that sort of thing. So I. Yeah, and that's Michael Madsen. Yeah, I. <laughs> that, that was the point. He sort of leans back into what he normally does. Okay. Yeah, I didn't feel the uh, the breaking of things and feeling like uh, Louise was at risk there. So, yeah, mm. he's not a good dude by any means. I'm just, I like that we have that character, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay, yeah, perfect sense. And if I'm talking about things that look good, uh, this is a pretty stunning film. Um, now, they're going on a road trip across basically the most beautiful parts of the of the American road. Um, so that, so they've got a lot to shoot, but it is done so well. And, and the sweeping shots of them driving out and, and some of the things they do on, across Monument Valley and then getting into some of the towns. It's just absolutely beautiful. I, I like to call out cinematographers. Uh, mm-hmm. This is another British cinematographer, uh, Adrian Biddle who uh, worked with Ridley Scott on quite a few things. He was one of the film crew on Alien. Um, Amanda, you're quite like that he was the cinematographer for The Princess Bride and Willow. Well, I haven't seen Willow, but cool. Hmm. I like Willow's on the list. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, he's someone we quite like, so. Okay. That's good stuff. Cool. Awesome. Um, I think now is a great time to talk about our favorite lines. <laughs> um, I'm going to share mine and I would love to find out um, what your favorite lines were. So I know we've shared a couple throughout the show, but I love the following four. This is some vacation. You know me, Jimmy. I'm just a wild woman. And then um, I've already referenced this one, but uh, Thelma says, something's crossed over in me and I can't go back. I just couldn't live. And then, of course, at the end, let's not get caught. Let's keep going. I think those are all really good. I mean, the, I will say the the dialogue in this movie was actually really well. It was a nice mix of gravity for the situation, but also some wittiness. Yeah. Too, I think. Hmm. I agree. I like I like everything. So you know, <laughs> I'm not going to say much more than that. <laughs> for for me, it's that the wittiness where they uh, Thelma pulls the gun on the policeman and they're putting him in the trunk and she has that line of you know treat your wife well my husband didn't treat me well look how i turned out yeah my my husband once sweeped me (laughs) look how i turned out (laughs) yeah that's one of the ones i I wrote down because i really liked it huh i Um, got there first you did get there first (laughs) um i think one of my other favorite ones are when uh, they're all in the car. So Thelma, Louise, and JD are in the car and they're talking about Thelma's husband. And uh, Thelma says he kind of prides himself on being infantile. <laughs> and Louise says, well, he's got a lot to be proud of. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> that cracked me up. I liked that a lot. So good. <laughs> nice. I also, um, I didn't note this, but I think it's really funny. Matthew's already touched on the scene with uh, where they lock the the cop in the trunk. I think there's a kind of like delicious irony in the fact that the women are like, I apologize, officer, you know, and they just kind of like emphasize this apology for most of the scene, which is really interesting because it kind of speaks back, at least in my opinion, speaks back to that kind of like ingrained thing where women are supposed to be polite and we're always supposed to be apologetic and caring about the other person before we care for ourselves. Um, So I think there's kind of this like hilarious irony happening in that scene that I've always kind of relished. (laughs) 
Yeah, and um, going back even further, what you mentioned her, the tears in her eyes when she's uh, stopping the rape from happening and, and how much it's affecting her. And that is absolutely like she has all the power in that scene mm-hmm. and is stopping this thing from happening that's so important and yet he's unrepentant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I might have written this question out or thought about it, um, but I actually wonder, like, what do you think makes Louise shoot him? Because they, they stop the rape or, or, I don't know, the attempted rape, whatever. And they seem like they're about to go on their way and just leave. And then he turns around or he says, you know, like he calls them a bitch and like suck my cock or some gross thing like that. And that's when Louise turns around and shoots him. And do you think that this is, and I guess this is part of why maybe my critique has always leaned towards this like feminist view of the film. I wonder, is it, do you think that she's shooting him because of what he did or because of what he represents? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Um, I think (laughs) it came across to me as a knee-jerk reaction because I may be misremembering, but I feel like he also said something along the lines of he should have done it anyway. Like he should have found a way to continue assaulting Mm -hmm. her. And and, and that's when he gets shot. And so I think... There was a little bit of that knee-jerk reaction, I think. Mm. But then as we learn more about Louise throughout the rest of the movie, I think we also find out why she reacted so strongly. Mm -hmm. Because she's got some sort of personal experience with this sort of thing. Right. If if that makes sense. Totally. That's interesting. Yeah, very, very much. I I take it as it's her own experiences coming into this, but there's an implication of that he's done this before mm-hmm. and although like i say she's got all the power he's probably going to do it again mm-hmm. yep okay well is there anything else that we need to talk about with thelma and louise ali do you have anything else on your list you wanted to i'm i'm, I'm just thinking through um i think we've actually covered like quite a bit um so i don't think that i have too much really else to say <laughs> um like i i know that i kind of wanted to know I guess maybe just as an overall question, like, Mandy, do you think that at some point you would revisit this film and maybe try and put on that feminist hat and see if it changed your opinion of the film? Or do you feel like you will never get past the kind of aspects that um, you've already presented critiques for? Oh, that's a hard one. I don't know. I think if I tried, it would have there would have to be significant time to pass between now and then because I would kind of need a palate mm-hmm. cleanser to kind of reset my brain and the thoughts that I have and, and stop being so like strongly opinionated about it um, before I could. Um, I think I would like to, I would like to be able to see it the way so many others have, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do understand that my perspective is different and really in the minority, I think. So I, I think I would like to give it another shot at some point, but I think time would have to pass so that, some of the strong opinions that I have could kind of settle down. <laughs> That's a very kind of dignified way of putting that. <laughs> I, I, I have one thing that I think I want to do as a request for any listener with any artistic skill. I would like a drawing of the three of us with feminist hats on. <laughs> Sounds great. Especially the woolen and pink ones. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, so to completely change gears, I have one thing that I want to mention that has absolutely nothing to do with any of the stuff that we've okay. talked about. It, it's not it has nothing to do with misogyny or feminism or women empowerment or anything. This is just something that bothered me in the direction of this okay. movie. 
So, and maybe this is just a thing that they do in movies, but this, so much of this movie was in a car that they were trying to keep hidden, that they did not want to be seen. You know, they, they did not want to be caught. And every time they tried to avoid the cops, they would get off of the pavement and drive very fast on the dirt, which leaves a very, very visible dust trail behind this car. <laughs> so I don't really understand why they did that and why they kept doing that. Because to me, I feel like if I want to hide, I'm going to not do it where I'm going to be sending up what are essentially smoke signals of, hey, here's my location. Ah, but here's the trick is that we've already said that this is a make-believe world. So in this make-believe <laughs> world, apparently that the, the dust does not help the police in any kind of way. So they just continue to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I will have to whistle past that and just accept that as a head can. It's invisible dust. Invisible dust that is not visible to police people, apparently. <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, that's great. <laughs> okay. So our final question for Ali. Do you have any recommendations for Mandy's list that you think she should be watching? Okay. So I think... This film I never even heard of until I went to this uh, this class that I've mentioned a couple times in the show now, and I think it's fantastic. It's a film called Whale Rider. Um, the lead actress in the uh, in the film was actually nominated and potentially won. I sorry, I can't quite remember, but she was nominated um, for an Academy Award. She was only like. I don't know, 14 or 15 at the time, maybe even younger than that. It's a it's a great film. I, I can't really say too much more about it. I don't want to spoil it, and I don't want you to go in with like certain expectations, so I would rather just leave it at the title. <laughs> okay. okay. And then, I will say I have heard of it. Okay, that's um, great. I do. I remember seeing it on the shelf at Blockbuster, and <laughs> like I have a vision in my head of what the cover of the VHS looked like. Mm. Um, but I, I have no idea what it's about and I have not seen it. So I will keep that one in mind. Okay. She, uh, she didn't win the Academy Award oh, because okay. Charlize Theron won it for Monster. Oh, see? So we'll let that happen. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, I also have a, a little bit of a goofy recommendation, which I don't know if you've seen this yet, Mandy. Have you seen the movie Ever After, A Cinderella Story with Drew Barrymore? Oh, I have seen it many, many times. Okay. I don't know if you've ever watched it with a feminist hat, but if you haven't, go ahead and watch that movie with a feminist hat on because it is amazing and feminist. <laughs> no, I agree with you on that one. That one, absolutely. Because she is, I mean, Danielle is amazing. and So she good. <laughs> does not, I, like, I love that scene in the end where he comes to rescue her and she's like, I rescued myself, dude. I know. You know? <laughs> yes. And it's not even, it's not even about her and the prince. It's about her and her relationship to her fucking evil stepmother person and kind yes. of sorting that out. And exactly like she rescues herself she doesn't she doesn't need the man the man like and it, sorry i'm just gonna get really excited but so much <laughs> of this movie is like precisely about her teaching him what it is to be an ally like he he's such an ass when he when she meets him and then he starts to realize like what is the difference between me and somebody of you know lower class or a gypsy or whatever like you know, we're all the same. And he's transformed by the end of that film. Like, he doesn't feel like he deserves her, but he loves her enough to ask anyway. And she accepts, which is awesome. Yes. I, I 
you still get the happily ever after in that one, which yes. is called ever after. Um, and, and so that's why it, it's, it is one of my more favorite movies. I've, I've seen it many, many times. And I, I shout at the screen and like pump my fist in the air every time. And it's, it's wonderful. Great. Um, and also I think I mentioned this earlier in the show, but if you haven't seen Atomic Blonde, I recommend that one as well. I think it's pretty great. <laughs> I have not. It it is something that I'm interested in seeing now that I've finally seen the trailer for it. So I will give you one small disclaimer. I read some reviews of people that anticipated this to be like a female bond. It is not a female bond. It's more like a female born. And in my opinion, which is like way better. Than, better. It's better because I don't like bond, but I love born. Right. So. Right, right. So I think you'll like it. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we wrap up today, uh, we do want to, you know, talk about some listener feedback that we've had on some of our past episodes. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the show, because you guys, I really, really love it when you guys reach out to us and tell us what you think, uh, both about what we say in the show and what uh, you thought about the movies that we're watching, too. So don't forget to keep sending us your feedback. Uh, the first feedback we got was from Alan Nordstrom at Chipper Allen about Spirited Away. He said, I'm not sure if it's in the DVD extras or an interview I read with Miyazaki, but I remember say him saying, no face is a bit of self-insertion. When Catherine said that he is greedy for emotional connection, that is how he described artists. Making something from nothing, the gold, but emotionally consuming people around you. He is fixated on Sen like an artist on a muse. Wanting approval, what he needs is friendship. At one point he has hair, and this was done in a star that was close to Miyazaki as a young man. He is a needy artist who longs for love. No faces inside every creative person, our own demon, but he is a wonderful friend too. It all depends on what he focuses on. I really like that. Um, it, it helped me a little bit with understanding the character of Neface because I was kind of confused about why he was there. And I really liked it too because it helped me relate to it because I feel like reading that description makes me feel like I am Neface. So thank you, Alan, for writing to us. We also heard from Rachel at Gypsy Book Nerd about The Last Crusade, who was shocked, just shocked, that I made a Star Wars reference while discussing another Lucas project. <laughs> because Matthew never makes Star Wars references, ever. ever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, every, every seven seconds I'm thinking about Star Wars, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there are so many ways that you can get in touch with us. If you want to give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vos. Ali, where are people able to find you in the world? You can find me at, at The Ordinary Folk. There's no S because Twitter wouldn't allow that many characters. Thanks again for having me on the show, guys. Oh, no, thank you for coming. It's, this is a great conversation. Yeah, it's been terrific. Really, really interesting. So thank you very much for joining us. Pop Culturally Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Any amount you give, even $1 a month, will give access to exclusive content and helps to support the network. To find out more, please visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget, the best way to help spread the word about the show is to recommend us to a friend. So if someone mentions a film we've done or a film they love, please do uh, send them a link, burn them a CD, copy it to Minidisc, find a way of making them listen to it. 
If you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, remember we have a weekly newsletter. You can subscribe using the link on eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Little Shop of Horrors with Dr. Kelly Jones. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And I may be the outlaw, but you're the one stealing my heart. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.